Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed podcast for Tuesday, May 12th, 2020. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do? Well, Joe, we're probably going to talk extensively about Michael Lewis. This is the fifth risk and nothing else. Yeah, we've decided that we are on the ivory tower and this show will now be Michael Lewis's The Fifth Risk Show. Um, I'm changing my name to Michael Lewis. And my name is Michael Lewis. And these are The Fifth Risks. Will we get to the sixth one someday? You'll have to listen to find out. Yeah. But anyway, we... uh. We know that we are only human. We don't know everything. We're going to have some conversation, hopefully in good faith. And that. But we anyway. won't actually be on the ivory tower. We acknowledge that others have viewpoints that are different from our own and also valid. But we will try to weigh them out here, being as fair as we possibly can, even though we often fall short. Yeah, yeah, we're just a bunch of hacks, but partisan hacks. Anyway, Evan, what do you want to be a partisan hack about today? I think that arguably the most polarized issue within our public spheres these days is music. And that's why I want to talk about Bob Dylan. Recently, on March 27th, Bob Dylan released his first new song in quite some time, a 17-minute behemoth called Murder Most Foul. Murder Most Foul has been making the rounds with serious music critics all over the internet, many hailing it as a masterpiece. But I want to kind of uh, uncover what the song is about, why it's resonating with people, and what I think about it. So, as I mentioned, Murder Most Foul is a new Bob Dylan track, and the titular murder refers to the assassination of JFK, on November 22nd, 1963. Without, throughout the song, in its lengthy runtime, Bob Dylan waxes poetic about the murder, referring to it in different glossy terms, before eventually turning the song into a stream-of-consciousness, free-association type of segment about popular music and other aspects of popular culture from the last 60 years. The song is pretty much just Bob Dylan speak singing the lyrics that he has written over a pleasant, if repetitive, piano and violin instrumentation. The song reached number one on the U.S. Rock Songs Digital Song Sales chart on Billboard. Whoa, and it's that's, the... <laughs> a, that's a specific one right there. Yes, and actually, like, holy shit, the Billboard charts mean nothing because they can get ridiculously niche and specific like that but it is the first number one song that bob dylan has ever had on any billboard chart so it's kind of interesting i mean this is about as specific as the amazon bestsellers list that i found before the show in casualty insurance <laughs> and there are different insurance book bestseller lists so but hey good for bob dylan yeah, good for Bob Dylan and good for good for those uh, casualty insurance guys. 
Yeah, it's it's not getting the top of the risk management I- insurance ca- category <laughs> on Amazon, but it's close. It's something, yeah. So, like I said, critics have really found a great deal of meaning in this song and have had a lot of fun deciphering and analyzing the lyrics, even though, to my taste, they're a bit transparent. NPR found 73 references to music, film, politics, what have you. And they have compared it very favorably to other similar songs, and we'll get into that in a second. But I gotta admit, listeners, I love Bob Dylan. I really respect what he's done. I think that he's on a very short list for the most influential American musicians of all time. And yet this one, it doesn't work for me. I've listened to it several times and it's really just not sparking whatever needs to be sparked for me. I think that the the rhymes feel really forced and the language gets almost purple at some times. It's very overwrought. In describing the JFK assassination, he says, they killed him once, they killed him twice, they killed him like a human sacrifice. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> you just, you're, you're, you're finding a million ways to say that JFK died. You know, th- there's other lyrics that refer to him as a sacrificial lamb being led to a slaughter. By who? Is is he, is Bob Dylan wading into conspiracy theory waters? It's just not working for me. Um, uh, Evan, I, I just gotta say, I'm glad you said, you know, you're kind of critical of it because I was scared that this was going to be one of those where, like, it's you think it's the second coming of Jesus. And then I'm like, I just don't get it. <laughs> no, no. That's the thing is I don't really get this either. Um, okay. So, yeah. And I've, I always said, I've, I've, I've tried to get into this. I've been banging my head against this song. Um, I just think that there's not a ton of musical progression. There's not really a lot of commentary on the issues I will say, though, in researching this song, yes, I researched this song for this podcast. I hope that you all appreciate it. I tried to because I could. I tried to because I couldn't figure out what was going on. (laughs) What what some critics have said is that it is Bob Dylan's attempt to place the decline of America, the epicenter of America's decline at the assassination of JFK. And it tracks decades of American decline in which we find refuge within popular music and popular entertainment. And if that's the case, they've said that this is it's very apt that Bob Dylan would release this during COVID-19 quarantine because it it speaks to our depressed mood as a as a culture, as a nation. But if that is what he's going for, that is way too pessimistic for what has happened over the last X amount of years within American culture. I know that there's been turmoil and unrest and decline within these past several decades, but I think that to say that the only bright spots have been a couple of random songs, and to his credit, he mentions many of my favorite musical artists, including the Beatles and Queen, But I just, I don't see this as the moment-defining track that some of these critics are trying to make it out to be. 
I, I talked about my dad. I talked about the song with my dad, and he immediately compared it to Don McLean's American Pie for it being highly referential to tell a story about American music and American culture. But here's why that doesn't quite track for me is because American Pie, for one, it's at least veiled. It's fun to kind of try to figure out who the jester is and who the quartet are, who's playing dirges in the dark, what that all means. Here, Bob Dylan just says at the end of his song, after 10 minutes of using weird poetry to describe the JFK assassination, the last seven minutes of this song are him just saying, play this song, play this song, play this song. So there's really not any mystery to it, and that makes it less fun for me. Also, another song that critics have compared it to favorably is Reunion's song, Life is a Rock, But the Radio Rolled Me, where in a tribute to radio, it's just a rapid fire spitting out names of different musical acts from the 1950s through the 1970s. And I love that song. It's fun. It's light. It's bouncy. It just asks you to remember the songs that were popular and enjoy this new song that celebrates them. But Murder Most Foul is a real downer. It doesn't have any fun with it. it it's dirge-like in nature. And like I said, the, the, musical, the musicality of it is, is pleasant, but if you want to make a song that is a celebration of music, I think it needs to sound more celebratory. And so that's why, for the reasons of it being kind of blank references without a lot of context or commentary, I think that the best comp for this is We Didn't Start the Fire by Billy Joel, which is just a linear description of different events and people throughout world history from post-World War II to when the song was written in the late 80s. And I like We Didn't Start the Fire because I think it's kind of fun just to scream We Didn't Start the Fire, but it's not considered a good song musically. And for my money, that's where I think this song is going to rest in the annals of music history. I think that's the closest comparison to it. You know, it kind of... Now that I'm looking at it, it kind of makes sense that Bob Dylan would think that the assassination of JFK is where everything changed because he was born in 1941 and what the JFK assassination happened in 63. So he would have been in his early 20s, his formative years of his kind of I mean, I don't know much about Bob Dylan, but most people kind of form their outlook on life somewhere in their early 20s, or it's heavily influenced by that. So <laughs> it could make sense. Like, he became essentially became an adult, that happened, and then everything's bad. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that's, I mean, if that's the claim he's making, but it can make sense why that's uh, such a big uh, point in his life and why he would stake that culture and everything shifted after that. Yeah, that's that's an excellent context to provide. Um, so also in doing my research for this song, I found that the Rolling Stones recently released a new single as well, also during quarantine. This one called Living in a Ghost Town, which they had been working on on their most recent tour, which was halted due to the COVID-19 pandemic. 
and they amended some of the lyrics to make it specifically about the experience of everyone being sheltered inside. And this one, to me, is a much better candidate to be the flag-bearing song of quarantine. I think it's interesting that a lot of seminal musicians from the 1960s feel so compelled to release new music now. It's extraordinary times. And living in a ghost town... I think succeeds because its lyrics have a greater specificity and the song is just more entertaining to listen to. It's four minutes instead of 17 and it actually has a good groove to it. It actually sounds a lot like the earlier Rolling Stones song, Miss You. So if you like that song or you're familiar with that song, you'll get a good sense of what the groove is like in living in a ghost town. So, so wait, you can listen to it like you listen to other songs. You know, you can actually listen to two songs at once. Oh, wow. No follow-up needed. Yeah. All of this is to say, Bob Dylan, you'll never hear this, but I love you. And I recognize your genius, but I don't get Murder Most Foul. And I, I think it might go down as more of a novelty than a cultural touchstone. Maybe if it had some damn progression, I could get behind it. That's the thing, right? It's just sort of... The music doesn't build to anything. It's like on a 15-second loop. And it sounds nice, but when you hear it a hundred times, it sounds less nice than the first time. Yeah, yeah. Like, I had trouble paying attention while listening to it. It it was just kind of so meandering then i was like oh huh maybe i'll look at the wikipedia for this song oh maybe maybe oh what's this video on facebook oh okay (laughs) so so murder most foul check it out if you've got 17 extra minutes but don't expect the world joe did you have any uh any remaining commentary not really it it didn't spark much in me. Although I will say that 15 seconds of accompaniment is pretty nice. <laughs> um, it's very beautiful. If if it went anywhere, it'd be fantastic. Um, but again, it just kind of meanders. Um, it sure as does. A ca- as a casual, at least as a casual listener. <laughs> well, I'm not planning on listening to this again. Well, at the risk of starting to meander ourselves, I'll ask Joe. Hey, Evan. What do you want to talk about? I want to talk about Skinny Adele. Uh, I'm going to get in trouble. But anyway, um, so recently this past week, a picture of singer, songwriter, artist, pop star, maybe pop star. Yeah. Yes, Adele. pop star. Certified. Yeah. Got my yeah. seal of approval. Okay, Evan approved. Mr. Music approved. Um, she recently posted a picture. She turned 32 and posted a picture and she was very skinny in it. And this caused, um, various levels of response because if you are not aware of who Adele is, Adele is a British singer, songwriter, pop star, all the above. And, she had one of her main features was that when she was earlier in her career, 
she was noticeably overweight and not to say that that's necessarily a bad thing, but that was kind of part of her charm was that she was out there making music and not fitting the stereotypes of what a pop star looks like. And that came to become part of um, at least some people, how they saw her and part of who she was. And over the years, she has lost a fair amount of weight. Um, it's It comes to be seen that uh, famous people, if they're overweight, that somehow they figure out how to lose weight over time. Um, most do it. So over the years, she has lost weight, but this became very apparent in her picture that she posted on Instagram for her 32nd birthday, where she is very skinny. Um, in stark contrast to where she was when she first started her career. And there was a lot of praise for her because, you know, losing weight is a tough thing. But then there was also a notable kind of backlash to the praise that she was getting. Or maybe I just happened to follow the very specific people on Twitter who were backlashing or, you know, see the likes at whatever. Maybe I was just very uh, in the right spot to see the backlash, but it it kind of went along the lines of that it there are a lot of people praising her for losing weight and looking good and all that stuff. And there seems to be a notable movement of people who wanted to say she looks beautiful now, but she looked beautiful then, too, which is not quite what people were saying and I the reason I bring this up is because I am an overweight man I am very overweight and it's noticeable and over the years I I have watched kind of what I see as you know sometimes dubbed as the body positivity movement and in some ways, I identify with it. I like what they caught, you know, say. It's like, hey, people shouldn't be um, necessarily shamed publicly or treated a whole lot worse because they're overweight. And I can uh, I can agree with that and all that kind of jazz. But then there's also like a a negative side to it where if you know, anyone of note like loses weight and people give extra praise to that person for losing weight, which in my eyes is very much a good thing because being fat isn't good or fun or any of that. But people will get upset when people who lose weight get a lot of praise saying that, you know, they were still valid as a person before. And it's like, yeah, but they lost weight. They were able to do it. Um, and Adele was able to do it and she was able to lose weight and looks great, but that doesn't mean she wasn't valid as a person before, but it doesn't mean that it has, you know, she's less of an icon or less of a person or, or lost some sort of part of her charm as a person. She just lost weight and, um, it just, it, it sometimes gets annoy, annoying to me when people, uh, you know, there's a small sector of people who get mad at people f when they lose weight. And 
I don't think that's productive because while body positivity in my mind should be for saying that someone shouldn't, you know, necessarily suffer negative social consequences, I don't necessarily believe that they should be seen as a positive for being overweight. Like there shouldn't be some sort of positive award for being, I don't know, brave or whatever, whatever you want to call it. It's just that you don't get a negative association with it. So I don't know. It just it's it's always confusing to me. Um, and I've never felt like the love of that. Like no one's ever um, come along to say, oh, Joe, you're fat, but you're beautiful. Like nobody's out there fighting for dudes or really ugly people either. It just to me feels like the body positivity movement is often a weapon to be used for already hot women who are overweight and want to be seen as hot by general society. Um, I could be convinced otherwise, but it just it, it just felt weird. And I want to congratulate Adele for losing weight and that she isn't like a sellout for doing so. And it's not damaging for fat people that she did so. So that's what I got. Well, there's <laughs> a lot to unpack here. Yeah. Um, I guess I'll start by saying that I'm not sure I agree with your categorization of the backlash. I don't know if there's, I don't know if I'm seeing these people out here who are upset because Adele lost weight. I think the dynamic is a little bit different. I think that the the element to it that that resonates with me is that it's frustrating when positive attention is only given due to weight loss because it has this subtext to it that you weren't good enough before and now you have made yourself good enough because although there is there are definitely benefits to weight loss you really people on the internet by and large are not doctors and we don't really know what Adele's health situation was then or now and it just feels like we're we're running the risk of disguising aesthetic judgments as medical judgments when the correlation is not always so neat and tidy. I mean, but it's, I mean, at least with, I, I feel like um, that in this discussion that, you know, it, it seems like when someone's like, they categorize not getting a lot of attention when being overweight as like a negative and getting lots of attention when, they lose weight as a positive or like an extra, extra positive when it could just be that when you're overweight, you're at zero. And then at uh, when you lose weight, it's positive. Like Adele is a superstar, a pop artist, and there is no dearth of attention being given to her. 
And just the fact that she loses weight, maybe gets a little bit more attention, doesn't necessarily mean that she was a forgotten person because she was overweight. It's not, I don't think that she was forgotten. It's that, like I said, we're, we're using this very coded language to reward her for adhering to a societal ideal, but pretending that we are praising her for making strides in her personal health, even though that may or may not be true. I guess I just don't really, you know, this, this doesn't super grind my gears, but I just know that we, we so vastly overstate our ability to infer information about people's health from their appearance. I mean, I, I think, I think a lot of people congratulate her on her health because most people would see it as socially bad to just say, Oh man, you look good. Or you just look good now or in their eyes or something like that. When it's not even necessarily tied to health, but health is kind of the lens that people congratulate that kind of stuff through. And my my um, contention is that that's a spurious way to go about that. You see, it's just like, I don't know, just like on my personal end, like I know being fat sucks like it's no fun it's no good there is no party eating a bunch of mcdonald's doesn't make me a whole lot better than um being skinny and yeah i could you know it's just anytime someone becomes skinny i mean i i tend to believe that if you're at least normal size. I mean, you can mask a lot of, you know, pe- you know, skinny people have health issues too, but it's a whole lot better to be like that than like really fat. And, you know, I, I don't believe in fat shaming or anything like that, but I also just don't think it needs to be celebrated that I do see sometimes, not maybe not in this specific situation, but I do think that, um, you know, people being able to lose weight is inherently a good thing. And I think that if you want to make that claim for yourself, I think that's, fair but again i i just don't think that there's that strict linear connection and and here's the other thing is that weight loss is truly not realistic for most people the reason why celebrities often are able to do it is because they can afford to take long stretches of time to focus on their bodies they can afford personal chefs and nutritionists and so i i get what you're saying the impulse not to just praise people for being overweight but at a certain point you have to accept that there are elements of yourself that are going to be difficult to change 
And if the alternative is self-hatred, we, we got to find a more pro-social way to have people accept themselves, even if they have elements of themselves that they wish they could change. I mean, yeah, that's something I acknowledge as well, but it, it's just there's a fine line between like celebrating something as good and saying that something is okay that it exists like there like i want to be able to just live my life without people necessarily commenting on my size but then also i don't believe it would be right for people to like congratulate me for being overweight and being brave and still living my life or some shit like that um so i guess there is a fine line that can be crossed or whatever where there there's a difference between like celebration and um not making life a living hell for people i guess sometimes in that because i also do believe that you know there should be uh slack cut for you know overweight people because there is no true method to actually get it all done except it seems you know uh rich people can there's some way to throw a whole lot of resources at it to get it done but it it, it's just a complex subject and it's tough (laughs) yeah i i guess my my response is that people who are overweight especially women are often made to feel bad in the status quo about how they look, regardless of their actual health circumstances and regardless of their ability to control that aspect. And when people are feeling put down, you need active resources to lift people back up. So I don't see the body positivity movement as people just running around in a neutral status quo and saying, hey, good for you. It's more an expression of we understand that you are put down for these reasons and we wish to bring you up a little bit to try to counteract the negativity that exists in the status quo. That's more of how I see it. And I I will admit that there is a different gendered version of this where, um, you know, I did see some people who I know I have known personally share some stuff about the Adele thing. And it it, it really did want to it did try to hinge on that kind of you've always been beautiful, like like that beauty is a currency that women have to it's a state that they have to live in and that there's real currency in it that just as a man I don't quite understand or ever have to interface with Mm -hmm. like where beauty is seen as some form of well of self-worth of the standard of which there is seeing of validity in women and that's you know that goes back to like feminist critiques and all that kind of stuff but it's how a lot of women feel their place in society is partly through their beauty 
Um, maybe I'm overstepping my bounds by saying that, but it, it just, it definitely seems like there is a gendered aspect to it that maybe I'm not seeing the full scope of, um, because yeah, I'll admit I could be wrong on this, but it just feels to me that every time like someone who is famous, who was overweight and they lose weight and then they like, you know, try to show it off that it's like damaging to fat people. Uh, and that's what I disagree with. Now, I don't know if anyone's ever actually making that explicit argument, but sometimes it feels like it. It's extraordinarily difficult because we wish so hard that appearances didn't matter, that superficial things didn't matter. And yet, we all crave to feel beautiful, to feel accepted, to feel good. And those conflicting impulses weighed us into this tough territory like we're in right now. My thought is, I don't care what Adele looks like or how much she weighs. I hope that she is living her life in a way that brings her personal happiness and fulfillment. And if we extend a sense of love to one another, that is the best we can do. No, let's hate. Hate. I mean, hate, 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 hate. hate. Oh, is this like temporarily hate, hate? Oh, what's the guy's Clayton Bigsby, Clayton Bigsby. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The black, white supremacist from Chappelle's show. If you got hate in your heart, let it out. Yep. (laughs) That's such a good sketch. Oh, it's it's probably his best or very close to it. Here, I'm going to become the Internet's premier fat shamer. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to Clayton Bigsby myself. (laughs) Yeah, he has this rare condition where he can't look in mirrors or feel his own body. So he has no idea what he looks like. Yeah. (laughs) What if that's like a that would be a great new term to just kind of be in the general lexicon, like, you know, calling someone an Uncle Tom, but call someone a Clayton Bigsby. Yeah, just as a blanket term for all self-hating identities. Oh, you know, I, I think there is one. It's not Clayton Bigsby. It's uh, Uncle Ruckus. Uncle from, Ruckus. From uh, the Boondocks. Oh, I'm not familiar with that. Yeah, he, um, as a character, he dis- he is a very black man. But he describes himself as being born from white parents and having re- reverse virgiligo or uh, that skin disease. Vitiligo, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So he says that he's a white person, but has very black skin. Because have you of the watched? Uh, have you watched Atlanta? No. There's a really great episode in the first season called Ban. And it's about, well, it's it's like a fake news show for this one episode. It's kind of an outrageous concept. And one of the people that they interview, like their main story is this black teenager who identifies as a 60-year-old white man. Oh, and yeah. So, I've seen yeah. that sketch before. Okay, yeah. So maybe that guy too. That's all part of it. Yeah. Um, so anyway, congratulations, Adele. <laughs> Or not. (laughs) 
Uh, I think congratulations. But you can you, disagree you, with me in the email. I don't know. We don't know what her health situation is. Uh, so, here we are at a main segment. You guys may remember last week that I recommended a movie from the South by Southwest Film Festival to Joe, the documentary TFW No GF, which covered a specific internet subculture of alienated young men. Joe has watched the film, and we are now prepared to discuss the film a little bit more in depth and hopefully broaden into discussions of the film's themes, which tap into conversations that Joe and I have had that predate this podcast, themes of masculinity, of digital alienation, and of intense feelings of despair and loneliness. So, uh, Joe, the listeners got to hear my quick snap takeaways last week, so why don't you give a, a brief Joe review of this movie? Yeah, I I enjoyed the movie. Um, the it, it wasn't a direct exploration of necessarily incels, but... Uh, uh, in the group of people who I kind of associate with that kind of weird brand of internet loneliness humor, which is just for the most part, some dudes in their early twenties who don't have a whole lot going on and just feel really disaffected by society. And that's a group of People I have occasionally identified with and um, have known because there is definitely this kind of, um, I don't know, there there is a cohort, a large cohort of 20-some-something men, young men at, you know, theoretically the beginning of their adult lives who just are directionalists and um, don't have a rudder in the water and they don't know what to do. So they turn to online, uh, you know, social medias that are different from everyone else's and just have a, uh, have a go at trying to explore their loneliness and try and find connection however they can. And that's what this movie is about. Um, people who are extremely lonely finding solace in the fact that there are other people who are also extremely lonely. And it's a tough time and can lead to extremism. And this is where, um, you know, any group of people who is trying to do some big societal change will often time or try to uh, pull from this group because they're very impressionable and can kind of tack on to anything that helps express their grievance. But, um, yeah, I really like the movie. It wasn't too heavy handed and it wasn't, um, credulous about it, which I really like because that's sometimes how those types of films feel is like, Oh, look at these fucking weirdos. And it's like, Hey, these are people who have thoughts and feelings and, have some complex issues going on that are bigger than themselves. And I, I enjoyed that. Yeah. I think that it was definitely a movie that met these men on a human level and heard them out 
without passing judgment, which for the most part is a good thing. Although, as I've written, perhaps would have been nice to challenge some of the more extreme and reactionary ideas that they have. But nonetheless, very human and a very respectful film. I want to make a note on the distinction between different types of groups, specifically with incels, because they they mention incels in the film, but they don't specifically align the men that they cover in the film with the definable group as incels. But I think, and I think Joe would agree, that for the most part, we're going to be using incels as perhaps a blanket term or at very least a very closely related group that i think is is very relevant to discuss yeah um so the kind of group that these people in the film more uh align with um there's this acronym called neat uh stands for not in education employment or training um so that's kind of a more accurate term for the people who were in this film. I mean, some of them did have employment, but um, it's it's another. It, it's not separate from incels. An incel could be a neat or not, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, there are distinctions to be that could be made, but yeah, when we use kind of the incel language, it's going to be a little bit broader than we would like to just because it's harder to categorize every subgroup that is either in or around that movement Mm -hmm. or group of people. But I will loop back and talk about NEATS here for a second, because as Joe explained the acronym, the group that often feels disaffected and alienated and hopeless are people who sort of don't have that clearly defined path to move forward. And tapping back into my days taking sociology classes, they're probably experiencing what is known in sociological circles as anomie, or a state of normlessness. Essentially, these men do not capitalism and the dominant way of thinking and behaving has let them down and has not led them to prosperity. So they are not governed by the norms of broader society or maybe that those in years past would have been. And it's in this situation where people can find new communities that provide a new set of norms, which can be positive as some of the communities are online, which attempt to give them a sense of community and belonging, or as Joe mentioned, it can be extremely negative if the group that provides that sense of structure is one with more nefarious intentions. Yeah. Like, uh, I mean the, the, the greater entirety of the ISIS movement and jihadism in the middle East is essentially pulling from this group of people, but in in Islamic circles. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's a a well that they go to. They go to the disaffected young men, the people who live in families who are broken, who don't have a sense forward, and give them a sense of purpose and a way forward that is confirming of their insecurities and gives them a path forward. And Um, yeah, there's 
a lot of different manifestations of this in other parts of the country. Specifically in Japan, the the terminology for it is hikikomori. And these are young men who live with their parents and essentially have their parents provide for them and more or less don't leave the house other than maybe occasionally to get food. But other than that, they're plugged in almost all day on the internet in video gaming cultures or other online activities and it's creating a a problem in some aspects of japanese culture so this is where the the rubber really meets the road for me because i feel like it is convenient or trendy to say well who cares about this these men are privileged and they're fucking up and they don't need any help. But I think that that is really a, a dangerous mindset to take because when we're seeing patterns develop across the globe on a widespread scale, we have to recognize it as a social problem and social problems need to be addressed because I think that talking about this and making sure that we open a dialogue here is the way that we take the first steps toward eliminating the suffering both of the disaffected men and then those whose actions, who their actions end up hurting. So I think, and I know Joe agrees with me, that even though and, and some one of the characters in the film actually says this one of the young men profiled says that he feels like as a man there's stuff that he can't talk about talking about male specific issues it can at times be a big taboo but problems don't go away by ignoring them and clearly we are seeing a problem here yeah like any other issue in the world, the life, whatever, you kind of have to actually enter. I mean, at least from our point of view, you actually have to look at the underlying causes of what is going on and not just the outcomes that is coming from it. Um, because if you actually want to solve something, you have to look at what's making it happen and not just put a Band-Aid on what the result of it is hap- you know, is happening. Um, so getting to the finer ideas of what makes these men feel disconnected and rejected by society is key to making sure that they don't get radicalized and possibly turn into, um, mass murderers or just really shitty, toxic people in their community, which can happen doesn't happen to every single one of them and not um, not an ideal that the you know is in the mainstream of the community but it does exist at the more extreme edges um, because there will always be extreme people but there you you know if you create a favorable environment you can curtail radicalism absolutely um, and this is this is somewhat of the goal. And because even the minor, like these these people who go off and do these extreme things or participate in these forums, experience the most extreme versions of this isolation, of this um, lack of purpose, of this directionlessness, 
where many men in society feel feel the same things just at a much smaller level, but it still affects their lives. Absolutely. So let's get into some of these feelings of emptiness or directionlessness. Where Where is that coming from? Well, so from the people on in the movie, it seemed like there was a common thread where they were in families that, you know, their parents were not super present. They didn't give them a sense of purpose. They didn't give them direction and just kind of over time kind of let them, you know, lay waste to their lives some of the guys talking about how at even the age of 12, they started failing classes and dropping out of school. Um, that's quite an early age to start doing some of that. And it's quite hard to rebound. Um, so it seems to be that there is a sector of men who are just not given a purpose. They're, they're not helped or directed into, a how life should be or what kind of things that they should try and obtain in life or maybe through their life circumstances they've come to reject those messages of what kind of purpose that they should have in life but haven't been able to or fill it with something that gives them that sense of purpose but is contrary to whatever was being fed to them yeah i would categorize it as a sort of widespread disillusionment when confronted with the reality of the American dream. I think that the reason why this is, or part of the reason why, because this is very complex, but I think an aspect to it is that we're starting to see more and more young white men who are not as prosperous as they were told that they would be. Capitalism, in my opinion, has never been great at evenly distributing prosperity or even fairly rewarding positive aspects, but it's just that now there is less, although there still is, there's less discrimination against other groups, and so white men are starting to feel this. And I don't want my words here to be taken out of context. Discrimination is still real and white privilege and male privilege are abundantly real and we still need social justice initiatives and a greater commitment to equity that's absolutely still a reality but things are more equitable than they have been in the past which is leading this group to now feel the sense of anomi more acutely than they have in past generations Right, because when you make systems more equitable, like letting in people who haven't been part of the system before because they were discriminated because of their skin or religion or what have you, then what ends up happening is that there is there is a group of people who come from the privileged majoritarian class who would otherwise be able to exist in a life of more privilege or be able to obtain better things. But since they were at the lower tier of being able to obtain that in the beginning, 
because there are more people in society who are going and getting those types of jobs or deals or whatever, then they are inherently getting pushed out. Like, you know, uh, there is inherently a limited number of spots to go to university. And when more people of diverse backgrounds are being taken on, that means that the people who there is a class of people who would have been let in before no longer will be because they do not meet the requirements to get in. It, it gets pushed a little bit higher. Yes. And, and again, let us unequivocally say that this has been a positive for society. A reduction in discrimination is always a net positive, but that doesn't mean that we don't have this other issue now to deal with. Yes. Yeah. D- letting more people into society or the greater societal uplifting functions that we have, that that's a very good thing. But then yes. we have this sector of mostly because of how the dynamics have happened, young white men who are now just left out of that system where in previous times they would have been included in it. And it's, it's tough for them. It's very tough for them. Um, It's, it's like they're living the lives that those people um, of the people who have now been uplifted would have otherwise lived. But then there's also the added complication that when you're kind of a disaffected group, um, you know, a minority or I mean, mostly a minority or a social group that is on the outs that you can have some sort of purpose derived from that fighting up, trying to um, live your life to the best that you can or rise up against the system or something like that. But these young white men, they are being told constantly that they are a part of the privileged class, that they have such opportunities and all these other things that other people would love to have, but they're not getting anything out of it. They just feel left behind, even with all those societal privileges. And this is where we get into some really tricky distinctions, because there's material deprivation, and then there's what I'll call spiritual deprivation. When we talk about material deprivation, this is where we get into those very important studies of how people of color and women make less money on the dollar than their white male counterparts. And again, that is extraordinarily valid and needs to be addressed with active social policy. These men that we're looking at do not share the same sense of material deprivation to the same extent. Oftentimes, they're not in employment or training. They can kind of live off of their parents' income, even though I think an important aspect of this is that the majority of these men do come from lower income backgrounds, and I think class is an absolutely salient factor. But the bottom line is they're not struggling to live their day-to-day life. What it what happens, though, is we have a sense, a truly profound sense of a lack of purpose 
a lack of opportunity and a lack of hope. And I refer to that as spiritual deprivation. And again, it's not to say that minorities can't experience spiritual deprivation as well, but for anyone who is in that position, it is really crushing. And it's difficult to wake up and feel like your actions have consequences, to feel like what you do matters. And we see that taken to dark extremes sometimes. Yeah. So, like, one example of this is that one thing that I've seen in my life, and it still happens now, is that there is an entire apparatus of organizations and societal sayings and and all these things going on about trying to get women to achieve more, to try and break free from uh, what they believe are the societal norms that have held women back and push them to achieve greater things than they think they can believe because, um, you know, there, there's a belief that you have to tell people, you know, that they're able to do things in order for them to be able to do it. Um, and there are, you can see lots of things like even products you can buy. Like I, I forget what podcast I listened to, but it was talking about something similar to this. And it was like, well, if you go to the store, you go to target and you go to the children's clothes section and you take your, young boy and you see that there are a whole bunch of shirts that say girl power and girls can do it. And, um, you know, we can, we can do this, but then there's no section that says boy power or boys can do it or, you know, boys can be whatever they want. And that's because we as a society, I mean, it's generally believed that men can do whatever, and that they don't need any additional encouragement to be able to go and do those things. But how do you explain that to a two-year-old or, you know, someone who's young and impressionable and trying to figure that out? Alternatively, how do you explain that to a, you know, a a lower-income man? How do you explain that to a first-generation college student, someone who due to his own complicated intersectional identity, does not have full access to those privileges. Yeah. And it's uh, it's a tough thing to make the call on because, um, you know, people... It, it seems to be a somewhat truism that... Uh, let me see. I, I have it down. That... Like, it seems to be very important that young people are spoken to and taught by people who with identities that the child identifies as. So we see, you know, studies that of how important it is for uh, young black kids to be taught at some point by a black teacher to have that um, camaraderie to be taught by someone who is in their spot and can speak to them from that identity. And it seems like in some ways there's some section of men who, when they are coming up through the system, they are not being spoken to on their identity. Like they could even have 
male teachers, but that if they don't get taught in through some um, prism that identifies with them, then it doesn't really matter. So it, it's a complicated sphere where there's this group of men who are just kind of uninspired and there is no societal backing to push them into achieving greater things with their lives. It's just kind of a either, well, you belong to this one class and you should inherently have um, that drive or ability or B, where if you don't have that, then we really don't know what to do with you and just you got to figure it out. Yeah, and that oftentimes is what drives them into some of these online communities because thus far, I think that Joe and I have been largely in agreement that this sense of ennui that's been felt is very real and very valid and needs to be addressed in a meaningful way. But I think maybe we are going to find a little bit of daylight between us when we look at sort of the online cultural byproducts of this group. I mean, this is this. I mean, just to repeat again, is that we do not condone the um, bad acts that these people do, but it's more of an exploration of what causes them to go into these bad acts and why they feel that way and they why they want to go into them. I think one of my frustrations, specifically with the TFW No GF film, is that all of the men interviewed seem to think that there's nothing, there's no harmful byproducts of their misogynistic tweets and their Gamergate bullshit and all of this stuff. One of the men um, got his account or was gotten to hot water on Twitter for tweeting, I want to punch a woman so hard in the face that her knees buckle. And he couldn't, he, could, he seemed like he couldn't understand why anyone would find that. He said, you know, I, I don't hate women. I have a girlfriend. He pulled that bullshit. But I think that that is really harmful. Saying that you're being ironic doesn't really absolve you of the consequences of your actions because irony online is extraordinarily difficult to detect and interpret correctly and that's where if you create a culture that is sort of misogynistic through irony that is setting yourself up to be misinterpreted and perceived in a very real way by people who then do go on to commit these bad acts and i want to specifically talk about a guy named Alec Minassian, who in 2018 murdered 10 people in Toronto, saying that he wanted to incite an incel rebellion based on these more radical ideas that he had picked up in some of these communities. And it's all a part of this same fabric that involves creating hostile communities online for women that the film never meaningfully challenges that I think is really important to challenge. Well, I, I will say, I mean, there are, we, when you get into online spaces, there is oftentimes this weird disconnect between 
um, the community that you may be projecting to and the kind of society writ large. Like, so that guy sends out that tweet about wanting to punch a woman and he's kind of doing it to the small subgroup of people who, for the most part, know that he's being sarcastic and it's used as a filter for him to express his angst at society, but he would never do that. Um, in the same way that there are some circles of online culture that will, um, through expressing their grievances about men, will say things like, oh, we need to kill all men or all men need to die or all men are shitty. And I mean, it's not to the same degree, but it's the same kind of thing where you're kind of projecting for your in-group that you specifically talk to. But then when you you take it out of that context and it's actually seen by the affected group, then it's seen as a very bad thing because those are hurtful things. But then also the kind of communities thing, like it's complicated because um, those people who go on to do the most radical things there, they actually belong to even more radical communities that are oftentimes much more secretive than just kind of um, misogynistic Twitter posts. Um, there are deeper threads and deeper holes that they go into that where, you know, th the line is a whole lot more blurred between the sarcastic and ironic and the real. Or it's much more explicitly that this is how we feel and this is the kind of, um, you know, this is the belief that we need to go commit these horrible acts in order to change something in society so i believe that's a much smaller part of the internet that also needs to be contained but i you know i i could be convinced either way of whether kind of the generic trolling stuff is indicative of the whole thing well i just don't see trolling as this sort of morally neutral thing and I, I don't think you're arguing that but i think the film at least certain interview subjects of the film do argue that but you know trolling i think is inherently negative because you're doing it just to get a negative reaction out of someone which is mean at face value and then there's the misinterpretation aspect which contributes to creating these hostile spaces and there are there's the added element that you in an online space you are never entirely in control of your audience and again to just chalk something up to irony or trolling i think can be dismissive of the power that words have even online. Yeah. Well, you know, and I, I also, like I kind of mentioned before, it's like, we're looking at the, um, we're looking at the thing we're trying to put a bandaid on and not necessarily the cause of it. Um, because it seems to be from at least what I've seen is that a lot of, 
these guys feel disaffected from society that they feel like they've just kind of been left alone. So they're like, hey, let's put push society's buttons to see what gets aroused at them. Maybe they'll finally fucking care about me um, when this kind of stuff happens or I say these types of things. Now, that's uh, an interesting perspective um, because I'm not sure that I picked up on that from the film. Um, but I'm not saying that it's not valid. Could you kind of expand on that a little bit more? Well, it just seems like, um, to, I mean, these guys, some of them explicitly said in the movie that they are kind of invisible, like between, you know, besides maybe talking to a cashier, they don't talk with anybody in a day where they don't have any social structures that check in on them. Or at least, you know, legitimate on, you know, real life uh, structures to check in on them and socialize with them. Then they find solace in trying to say these just most outlandish shit to get a row out of people, maybe as some sort of front to maybe be seen in some way. Like it's like the kid who throws a tantrum or or does something bad because they feel like they're not being seen by their parents. It's it's trying to act out and get a row out of people because just them in their normal lives doesn't get any attention from anybody. I do think it's interesting that that is sort of the negative attention aspect to it because there is a positive attention flavor of that where um i can't remember but it's it's one of the the 4chan chat rooms where they would go mm-hmm. and the the men could post stories sort of of their days and of their daily concerns yeah, and complaints yeah r9k um and that to me seemed like a more positive and affirming version of that i mean that is one version but that's not as much the kind of stuff that those guys would get in trouble for Mm -hmm. um if anything that section is just it's a way through like irony to actually express themselves um through a convoluted way because as we've we briefly mentioned before that through you know through the prism of masculinity men oftentimes have issues actually discussing the issues that they feel affect them and through that lens of irony and shit posting and you know funny images that they were able to actually in some ways communicate what was actually happening in their lives and their feelings towards it um which is not the same as um talking about just punching a woman Mm-hmm. Um, those are kind of different flavors of attention grabbing, but the R9K community, at least for some of them, seemed to be a place where they could actually be themselves and talk about their lives. Mm-hmm. So what do we do with all of this? That's a complicated question. <laughs> um, because... Um, yeah, nobody wants to be seen as the person who gives a lot of sympathy to truly evil people. And, um, 
you know, this it, the the people who are activists in this space are oftentimes the people who are against what these people do because it can materially harm them. Like the people who um, most are most active in this space are like, you know, feminists who get um, relentlessly trolled by these guys online for anything or people who are minorities who are activists who get uh, trolled and threatened and all this stuff by these communities. Um, So there isn't like it, it almost feels like there needs to be some sort of positive representation or organization or, or something that can recognize these guys for what's going on in their lives and help them turn it around and into something that makes their lives feel good. Like that's why Jordan Peterson is very popular is because he provides some sort of, um, positive life impact through their identity. Like these guys, since they have, um, it seems like a fair amount of these online people since they have, you know, been in these um, debates like Gamergate or, you know, talks, of, you know, against feminism or whatever battles in order to feel recognized. There's some guy named Jordan Peterson who comes along and he's also doing those uh, battles within society. And then also is like, hey, and here's how you clean up your shit. Um Here's here's a sense of purpose you can have in your life. And it's important to have a purpose. And I recognize the void that you're in. And um, here's how to get yourself out of it. And that's why that's very powerful. Um, You know, it's so interesting that you bring up Jordan Peterson because he never comes up in the movie. And yet, while I was making my notes for it upon my initial viewing, I wrote Jordan Peterson's name down in my notes he is kind of yeah the the one who has taken up this mantle i feel in a very toxic way and that's why i'm hoping we can start to move this conversation into a more productive space i mean that's the weird thing about jordan peterson is that like when he gives his life advice it's kind of banal it's like oh just get your shit together But then when he gets onto his weird political tangents, then all of a sudden there's a whole bunch of neo-Marxist, non-conformist, post-modernist come and destroy the society. And it's like, what? (laughs) That's pretty fucking wild, man. But um, yeah, it's it's like what I said before. It seems to be that in order to get people to kind of change or have a positive uh you know have a positive aspirational look at thing a look at their lives that they have to either have some role models or someone in their lives that speaks through their identities and shows them the way forward and that's what Jordan Peterson do- did like i just explained before he he kind of went through their identities of whatever they, you know, whatever they express politically online and then gives them a way forward. Whereas I would hope that there are some other identities that could be activated in these people and have a prism that they can look through to 
um, achieve a better life because it seems like, you know, while, you know, in movies and TV shows, there's all these characters who are men and men still hold all these high positions in society. It's become almost taboo to see the identity of man within them that even though our president is a man and always has been a man and all these people in uh, who run companies are men it is taboo to see that through the prism of men which some men may need to have a positive view on life because whenever there's a woman in those positions, we can see it through the position of a woman because they are the uh, traditionally um, marginalized group and less represented in those. But it's seen as a valid prism to see it through. So it's just um, trying to find these realms of which we can see eye to eye with these people these, you know, the greater incel community in order to be able to communicate with them and try and steer them in a better direction. I do think that that impulse to find a way to communicate that speaks to these groups uniquely is so important. There's a really poignant scene that sticks out to me from the film where the one of the the subjects is commenting on a news report that he saw where a, a newscaster was encouraging parents to talk to their kids about what's funny and about punching up and punching down which is extraordinarily well-intentioned advice and if you could get through that would do a lot of good but as the guy i think it was charles as charles notes what a lame thing from the the kid's perspective to have to sit down with your parents and get a lecture on what comedy is. And so there's this huge disconnect right now in the didactic tools being used and the audience that actually needs to receive the more positive messages. And working to find strategies to bridge that gap is going to be very important Otherwise, we cede all that territory to the Jordan Petersons of the world. I mean, in a, a, a prism to kind of see this through is like if you were trying to talk to young black men about, you know, how to better live their lives and, you know, better way forward. You wouldn't try and reach them with an older white guy who is successful <laughs> like that's not the person you would pull out to try and reach and deeply talk to that group of people. That just isn't who you would want to do. Or like, um, so, you know, you wouldn't want an old uh, stodgy racist executive to go and talk at a at a uh, young woman's conference or not racist, but misogynistic. Like those, those aren't the people that you want, you would use to go and try and energize those people into a better life and thrust them forward into what they can, you know, the highest potential that they can achieve. So it's trying to figure out who are the people that could talk to this crowd and not just be seen 
you know, blanketly that it's just a ploy to try and get these people to, you know, change their lives because they'll be very resistant to that because they are already antisocial in their behavior. And the last thing that they're going to do want to do is see someone who is benefiting greatly from the social structures that be come and tell them and how to be a fucking normie as they would possibly put it. Here's a thought that just occurs to me and I want to get your feedback on it. Mm -hmm. I think a huge element to this is we need to make it okay for men to express their emotions in a way that isn't socially corrosive. And I think that it's one thing to check in with people and ask them how they're doing, but I think just sort of asking someone, how are you doing, can trigger almost a defense mechanism, a desire to put up walls. I think maybe a way to go about it would be for men to actively seek out others and tell those people how you feel and set that example of saying, hey, I am going to open up. Hopefully you will open up to me. I think that that uh, it's almost like a, a leading by example instead of positioning yourself as, oh, well, I will listen to you because I think that almost puts you in a position above someone else and no one can really be comfortable in that position. Well, and then the the weird thing, I mean, I like the idea of it, but then there also has to be like um, beforehand, there has to be some sort of um, uh, social connection that happens between those people to get to that point. Because, I mean, I've experienced this as a man where I try to... Um, you know, I try to express whatever my emotions are or try to more truly express what I believe is something that I'm seeing in the world. And by either both, you know, by both men and women, just kind of after having that, just just uh, kind of ignored as seen as now I don't want to interface with that or not seen as legitimate problems. It's a it's a tough thing. Um, we don't, especially, you know, kind of through the prism of, you know, masculinity or feminism, like, you know, women, you know, seem to be able to better discuss their problems of what's going on, but then they also have the kind of framework that they're working against something or trying to fight to be themselves. And then again, in men cult, in men's circles, it's seen as, you know, we're the dominant people. So any sort of issues are just kind of existential and who cares because you don't have real issues. Um, even by other people in that group. So it's, it's a tough thing. It's, it's really tough. It is a tough thing. And obviously by virtue of who we are, we have a limited perspective. And so this is, I think a place where I would really appreciate feedback in any form, email podcast at adequately informed.com or reach out to me personally, social media, whatever. 
Um, it's one of those things where on this topic, especially, I think it's very easy to become blinded by your own positionality. And I'm interested in expanding that perspective in whatever capacity people are willing to engage with it on. Yeah. If you have a perspective, tell us. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause you know, we are, we're trying our best as we say, we're not perfect. We are, uh, you know, we, we are trying to create a space where we acknowledge the unique problems faced by men without minimalizing the very real power structures, which continue to oppress women, minorities, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So, and, and we're not talking about those just simply because we're not those. Um, we don't have a like perspective on that. We would actually just be arguing other people's ideas on that. <laughs> um, and trying to wade through that as much as possible. Um, and there's, but this there's is a, a conversation we can have. Yeah. Yeah. There, there's a space for us to have those other types of conversations, but this is the conversation we're having now. And we hope that we have been respectful. Yeah. Yeah. Because we don't, it, it just seems like we, we, we want everybody to have good lives, damn it. And, <laughs> um, and, um, doesn't really, uh, matter who, but this is one group that, um, seems to be having a tough go of it and there aren't a whole lot of the only people who are taking it seriously are taking it seriously for nefarious reasons um, mm-hmm. so and I doubt this will be the last time we interface with this subject on this podcast um, yeah it's unlikely yeah so I think that concludes the main segment I think we got a little bit of a, an end segment, unless, Evan, do you have anything else to add? No, no, I think that that was a natural conclusion. Oh, okay, yeah. So. The end segment. Looks like uh, COVID-19 is still out there. Have it's, you seen uh, it? No, I haven't, but I've, <laughs> I've heard of its effects, and... Um, so as of our taping on May 11th, 2020, according to the Google widget, there have been 81,378 deaths to COVID-19 in the United States. And as reporting has been going, it seems like Tuesdays often report the biggest uh, returns because that's when they finally count everybody who died over the weekend. Um, so tomorrow it could see a big upshoot in that but that's that's not good that is not good at all i wish it wasn't that um we're we're running we're in the scenario where we're definitely gonna i you know it's hard to see a future where we don't hit a hundred thousand deaths um and we'll probably be on our way to 200. And it is just sad to see that our country has essentially decided not to rise up to the challenge of this at all. And it really comes from the top down. 
because there has been great leadership at local and state levels, but there it just for something like a pandemic, the direction really needs to come from the top and there hasn't been any. And it's sad to say that we essentially just wasted April. We didn't get anything done. We didn't do any of the steps needed to reopen the economy. And now people really need the economy to reopen. And we can't because it's still such a public health risk. But if we had gotten all the protective equipment necessary and set up some sort of testing regime to make sure that people knew that they were safe, then maybe we could be reopening by now. But that's just not the case. Not the case at all. And we're stuck having to make a decision that we shouldn't have to make of whether we reopen or whether we take this seriously. And you can reopen and take it seriously, but we're just not pursuing that option. I think it echoes back to something that we said at the outset of this entire pandemic is that damn if Ezra Klein wasn't really on the pulse with why we're polarized everything becomes a political issue and all political issues cleave along pre-existing political divisions and unfortunately in this case this is manifested in a large number of people ignoring public health advice or even questioning why we should have public health as an interest at all and as Joe said, we have not made significant progress in the last month towards a safe reopening, but apparently the reopening will commence nonetheless. Yeah. Well, and it's weird because those people who are against taking it seriously seem to be the man in the White House, congressional Republicans, and then a really small minority of the people like really small um because even with all this going on and in places that have reopened it like mo there are a fair number of businesses that aren't even getting 10 percent of what they had before which is showing that the vast majority of people are still taking this seriously but uh, it it's just a small group of people out there demanding you know whatever's going on like there just the other day there was a group of protesters in New York City who showed up with guns some of them fake and got demanded to get served at a subway which like what a fucking stupid demonstration <laughs> but it's happening nonetheless like I think in this age, maybe we're letting a few people really get amplified in the void of people doing things or not doing things. But it's we haven't been doing what is necessary to get done. We haven't been doing what is necessary to prevent deaths. Full stop. How are we going to prevent more people from dying by opening up the economy? which should be something we should be able to do. It's just disheartening in the country, in a country that I fully believe 
can achieve anything it sets its mind to, that anything that it wants to get done can get done. And we are just floundering, absolutely floundering, because our president is a hack and (laughs) he would rather, you know, he he doesn't he just wants to spin it into something. And I mean, geez, at this point, he's so, um, you know, steeped in politics that I believe a foreign power could start to attack a blue state and Trump would just tell that state to fight it themselves. Like if Russia came over and started attacking California, we would just leave California to fend for itself for some reason. (laughs) It just this is this is I won't say it's the worst timeline, but this is pretty shitty. This is like this is the bad scenario from Trump that everyone was talking to about in the beginning that just a real crisis shows up and he's not able to handle it. And he hasn't. On a personal note, this is my contribution to the darkest timeline. I would like to eulogize the stacked pickle. The best place to get a burger in Indianapolis. Great food, great friends, great fun. They have shuttered their doors permanently, effective immediately, and they will not be reopening. They have not been able to stay financially solvent. And uh, stacked pickle, I will miss you. Damn. Yeah. That fucking sucks. Yeah. I I don't have many Indianapolis-specific places that I love, and yet one of them closed. Yeah. Uh, You know, I said this from early on, but I think we're still just at the beginning of it. We don't know the level of, you know, especially economic destruction that this is going to have. Like, factories are starting to just permanently lay off people now not expecting to reopen uh, when mm-hmm. this is over. Well, I mean, even when this is over, uh, things are going to look a lot different. You know, people well, and, are going to... Like, there Go isn't going to be a moment when it's just over. Like, there isn't just going to be a day where we're like, and we're done, guys. Woo! We did it. We suffered through it. No, it's going to be just ongoing until everyone is vaccinated. We're, we got a long haul ahead. We do. And, you know, as it's been said before, amid all of the chaos, be kind. I I feel like uh, that's kind of what I say a lot, but that's what a lot of my thinking boils down to. There is so much shit out there that we can't control. We can control treating others with kindness. So yeah. do it. Be a good person. So don't, don't, don't be a good person. That's what Evan says. Um, <laughs> you heard anyway, it here, folks. Yeah. On that note, I think that's this week's episode. We would like to thank Anthony Hish for the music. Again, if you have any perspective on anything, send us an email to podcast at adequatelyinformed.com. And my name's Joe Hicks. 
And mine's Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been adequately informed.